But that's Bobby Fisher, and Bobby Fisher is the epitome of Proverbs 18.1 we're going to look at here. Whoever isolates himself, seeks his own desire, he breaks out against all sound judgment. That's what Bobby Fisher did. He isolated himself, he broke out against all sound judgment. And, and, and many in the chess world lament his loss. I mean, it would, it, it, if he would have been playing for 20 years that he, he laughed, or if he'd been playing even after 1992, just what it would have been like. To see those games, a little bit like a, a Michael Jordan fan. If Michael Jordan had had uh, left after his first championship, 1991, all the joy that he gave his Chicago Bulls fans would not have been there. But Bobby Fischer pursued his own desires, isolated himself away from the world, and no one was going to change his mind. Now, what's true on the grand scheme can also happen on the, the smaller scheme as well. Picture with me a teenage boy down in a dark basement, Headphones on his ears, joystick in his hand, all the attention focused on his video display. He has separated himself from his family, gone into a dark place, entered his own little world away from his family and friends, alone with his little toy. You say, why has he done this? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's his drug. Maybe it's his way of running away from responsibility or, or neglecting his household duties. Maybe his motives are commendable. Maybe he just finished his high school exams. He's been studying a lot for them. He's just 30 minutes. I just want to kind of sit here for a little bit. Then I'm going to go out and mow the lawn. I'm going to rake the leaves. I'm going to clean the garage. You know, I doubt that. <laughs> More that he is here. And, and what starts here, oftentimes with boys, can be here. It's not uncommon for boys like this then to play all night. I have... Uh, counseled before with a dad who had a boy like this who basically played all games every day and never wanted to go to school never went to school never finished high school was leeching off his parents and someday he needs to come too but according to his proverb you say well why is he here he is here because he's seeking his own desire he's not serving others not helping others he's not part of his community he's choosing a course of action that that he wants to do in other words when people isolate themselves they do so for self-centered desires and really this is this is the reason why any of us would isolate ourselves some something is more important to us than community now there can be a good desire like jesus who'd slip away to pray there can be a good desire like the desire of the student who who leaves the dorm to seclude himself in the library because he's got exams coming up. Or, or maybe the mother who's just so tired and irritable with the kids just seeks solace away in the bedroom for a, a much-needed nap. I mean, those are all appropriate good times to be alone to separate yourself. But this is not. This is versus talking about one isolating himself, seeking his own desire, breaking out against all sound judgment, meaning that, that doing what everyone else would say, oh, you ought not to do that, yet still doing that. Right? And, and this someone who separates himself often feels that they're right, often feels like I'm doing the right thing, you're just judging me, you don't really understand. You know, but, but it's, it's all their desire for something else, and they'll cloud the issue trying to talk all around it, but really they want something else, and they'll seek seclusion. It's like, like James talks about with fighting, fighting and quarreling. He asks the question, James chapter 4, verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In other words, fighting and quarreling are, are symptoms of an underlying desire that you have that's not getting met, so you fight in order to get that desire met. Children fight over toys because they want the toy that their sister has. Couples fight over future plans because each spouse wants something different and you fight in order to get what what is you want. Parents fight with coaches because they want their child to play. See, there's their desire. So when any time there's a fight, you've got to say, okay, what's, what's happening below that fight? What's the underlying desire? And when it comes to people isolating themselves, it's something that they, that they seek. And, and, and what they desire is not being met by the community and maybe even is, is against the community and so they go off and they pursue their own lusts and passions. Oftentimes happens in divorce. God created marriage for companionship. A, a man shall leave his father and mother. It's not good for a man to be alone and come together in one. And, and oftentimes, or at least, at least one of them is seeking to separate. Right? Maybe for another girl or maybe if someone's not going to boss them around or maybe some more money. Maybe someone's going to better satisfy their needs. Right? They want something else rather than staying in that bond Happens in church discipline. Right? When a member of the church begins to, to, to stray because doesn't want to be involved in the community, wants to be involved in this sin, and someone goes and confronts them. And they say, no, no, I don't want that. Breaking against that judgment. and then, I don't want that. And then a couple come along, and they, they try to encourage the one to come back. And they say, no, I don't want that. And eventually the whole church knows. It says in Proverbs, in Matthew chapter 18, if they don't even hear two or three, then tell it to the church. Maybe they'll listen to the church. But oftentimes in the go and they'll separate themselves against all sound judgment of the church. Because they want to get away. It's easier to sin away from the group than it is to sin within the group. Because the group won't allow it. And rightly so. See, people will often separate themselves to sin. And, and just, just know that, right? If it's First uh, Thessalonians 5, 7. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. When you want to sin, getting away is the easiest way to sin. And when you're away and alone, it's the time where temptation is the most. It's no accident that Satan came to attack Jesus at his point of vulnerability, 40 days alone in the wilderness, fasting and praying. But Proverbs 18.1 is calling us to recognize the value of community, be accountable to others, rather than seeking your own desires and simply separating from a group. And, and I'll just say this. There are, are plenty of Christians who live in practical isolation. Oh, sure, they, they attend church each Sunday, but, but church consists of, of going and going to church and then leaving. Church is nothing about community at all. And for all intents and purposes, they're an island unto themselves. There's a podcaster they listen to or they read this or that. But see, listen, when God saves a soul, He saves him into a community. He saves him into the church See, our salvation isn't simply vertical, but there's also a horizontal dimension to it as well. Because left to ourselves, we don't relate to each other very well. And left to ourselves, we don't relate to God very well. And so the cross, when Christ came, he, he solved our legal problem before God, that God is our judge and that we're sinners and we're under his wrath. He solved that problem, but he also solved a societal problem as well. In Ephesians chapter 2, it speaks about how he reconciled Jew and Gentile into one new man and he called Jews and Gentiles to, to live together in harmony within the church and to love one another, and serve one another, help one another, encourage one another. That's Christianity working out. 
Over and over again, you see in the Bible talking about faith and love, faith towards God and love towards the saints. And so many times people think it's just it's just faith, right? It's just me and Jesus. But they miss this whole corporate dimension. And I believe Proverbs 18.1 speaks of that. People isolating themselves against their own desire. But know this. The church is here for our good. The church is here for our help. The church is here for us to manifest and to display our faith. The exhortation from Hebrews chapter 10 says this. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works. Right? Let's think about how we can stimulate others to love and to good works. Not neglecting to meet together, so the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's the exhortation from God is to think about how we can stimulate one another, and, and, and we ought not then neglect the gathering together and the being together with, with everyone. And I just say, I'm not, I'm not preaching Proverbs 18.1 because it's not happening, because it is happening at Rock Valley Bible Church. I mean, our service ends about 1130-ish, but... For all practical sense, I mean, it's 1230-ish is really the time our, our service ends. As many of the people are still here and still serving and, and showing love towards each other, connecting here on Sunday morning so that afterwards they, they understand how they can connect throughout the week. It's like Sunday morning's a time to get some context updates so that maybe something stirs your interest so you can meet with someone after church. So I encourage you, are you an isolated island or are you an integral part of the church? what Proverbs 18 is, is calling us to. Okay, we're going to do is we're going to sing a song. And then, uh, Phil, you can come up and we're going to have Garth install us a deacon next. Good morning, church family. <clears throat> today is a very special day in many ways. Some real highlights today. Um, Marcy and and the baptism and and we also have the joy of of the Lord watching the Lord or witnessing the Lord meet a need that we've had in our church for some time and that's the uh, calling installation of uh, of a deacon and um, <clears throat> you know the uh, there's a number of things that we talked about a few months back when we announced that Garth was going to uh, be presented to you, um, and of course, there is a need for deacons in the church. And I read from Acts chapter six, verses one through seven. We're not going to read that again, but uh, basically, in those days, it was for the uh, deacons to handle the physical needs of the church body, so that the elders could devote themselves to prayer and ministering of the word. But what, uh, what are deacons to be used for today? They're not glorified spiritual church custodians, as many would think. But they are really called to serve the needs of the church body, and really, in particular, the needs of others. Uh, they're really called, um, they have special gifts, and they are to recognize and supply the needs of widows, orphans, singles, the sick, anyone who has a financial or a physical need who needs to be helped in the church, we call them God's ministers of mercy. They're also uh, called to oversee the operation of the church facility, and we're very blessed to have this church building. We didn't have one for many years, as you well know. 
Uh, and they're also called to do things outside the church. I think I remember we had a group that went down to Louisiana, down to minister to those that were affected by Hurricane Katrina. And a number of, uh, of our people went down, organized by a deacon. And then other duties as directed by the elders. Now, there are qualifications for being a deacon. And it's a scriptural process. And I'd like to ask you to turn to 1 Timothy. We'll read, we'll, we'll read that particular passage. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Excuse me, chapter 3. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 3, verse 8, it says this, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, be sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So there are standards, there are qualifications, there are testing periods, and so... um, we want you to understand it is a process. You know, I've been in churches before where, you know, the annual uh, budget or board meeting or church business meeting comes up and they say, well, we have a slate of new deacons to serve this year. We put them up on the board. We need to ask you to vote for them. Well, that's not the way we do it at Rock Valley Bible Church. We want to make sure that we do it by scriptural process. And it's a qualification period. Now, we also are refining our process, and what I mean by that is that it was brought to our attention the last day or two that uh, there were several families in the church that weren't aware that Garth was submitted as a deacon. That's our fault. We apologize for that. We ask your forgiveness. Uh, we're, we're working on uh, better communicating to you those, those particular activities, and um, so we'll, we'll improve our process as time goes on. But we have observed Garth uh, and, and Vicki both over the last few years, and I'm sure you've been blessed by some of the things that Garth has done in your lives. Uh, you know, he deserves uh, to serve the church body in this office because he has been gifted uniquely and has a desire to serve you. And that's very important. Nothing's worse than somebody who has been kind of voted into office who doesn't desire to be there. Uh, serving kind of out of obligation. And uh, we don't want to see that happen. That's, of course, not Garth's attitude. Garth is also spiritually mature and has the necessary skills, good people skills, excellent uh, manual skills. Uh, He's in the trades. Um, And I know that many of the widows here, some some of the widows here have been ministered uh, by him. He's also been examined by the elders and has also been recommended by Ray Hook, our other deacon. And I think the Bible says someplace it's not good for a deacon to be alone. He must have another deacon. (laughs) So anyhow, um, I'd like to ask uh, Garth to come up. And I'd like to ask also uh, Steve and and, uh, Darren and, and also Ray to come up. And I'm going to do something a little different. We're going to pray over Garth. 
Garth, if you could stand here, appreciate it, and then Ray and the other guys stand in the back. You know, every every position I've ever taken, I, I was, you know, when I was commissioned in the Army, we had to take an oath of office to defend the Constitution of the United States. People that are aspiring to a leadership position often take oaths. Uh, anybody here uh, a soldier or a sailor or been in the armed forces, you had to take an oath of office. And so what I've done, unbeknownst to these fellows, is I put together an oath. And so <laughs> I want to go ahead and administer this oath to Garth. And I'd like to ask Garth to face me, Garth, and I want you to raise your right hand. <laughs> He's qualified for the job. <laughs> and I'd like you to repeat after me, Garth. Okay. I, Garth Breckenridge. I, Garth Breckenridge. After examination by the elders. After examination by the elders. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. To fulfill the office of church deacon. To fulfill the office of church deacon. I pledge to give my time and effort. I pledge to give my time and effort. To serve as the Lord and the elders direct. To serve as the Lord and the elders direct. In meeting the needs of our church families. In meeting the needs of our church families. With the Lord's help. With the Lord's help. Amen. Amen. All right, brother. Let's pray over Garth, and uh, I'd like to ask you fellows to pray. And let's put our hands on, on Garth here, and then I'll be the last to pray here. Ray, wouldn't you go ahead and pray first? Lord, we thank you for Garth. Uh, thank you for the help, Lord, to uh, bring him up alongside, uh, just to help out with the needs of the church. We pray, Lord, for his abilities, and that you strengthen him, Lord, and that the work that he does is just a showing of you throughout this life. Uh, those who serve well as deacons uh, obtain great confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray you give Garth the strength to serve, to serve well, that he might have just a, a good standing and great confidence in the faith that's in Christ. So help him. God, give him a, a vision for the, the things to be done. God, help them to always prioritize what is right. Lord, but we pray that in the, in the times when there is a need at church, I pray you'd open up schedules and give him opportunity to, to serve in a way that would please you in every respect. Lord, as a qualification of a deacon or an elder, we're first called to, to lead and deacon our families uh, and our wives. Lord, I pray that uh, through this that Garth would continue to love his wife, to uh, uh, just serve her, her and Vicki and the kids as well, Lord, and as from that, in addition to that, I pray that he would continue to serve this church body, that he would be a servant of the, the body of Christ and would be with him and with his family as in the, the months and years to come that he would you would equip him to do the work that you've called him to do Lord Jesus we just thank you for Garth Breckenridge and for his wife Vicki for their children father father we lift them up to you today we thank you for their willingness to serve us and serve you Father, we, we pray that they would not be weary in well-doing. Father, we pray that you would bless them for their effort, that you'd give them many opportunities to serve us and in turn serve you. 
And Father, through that service, others might see a love for you. Father, we pray for protection of Garth and in his activities here. I pray that you would, you would open his eyes, Father, to see the needs. That he have many uh, appointments, Father, to, to help and serve others. And uh, may there be good words spoken about Garth and Vicki Breckenridge. And we thank you now for this opportunity. And, Father, we pray that he would continue to serve in that role and that he would continue to be qualified for that role. As the needs arise, we, we give you all the praise and honor. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you, brother. Thank you. Uh, so we have Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17. I want to read it for you. Just uh, again, I'm going to one verse and just want to look at it, think about it, illustrate it, dissect it, that this might become something uh, something of us. Proverbs 18, 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Okay, let's let's read it together. It's up there, right? Okay. Whoever the one who states this case first. That's not what I got here. That's, I got I got Proverbs 18, 17. Is that what we got? Alright, I'll just say it. Okay. Are, are we gonna get that? Because it's uh I'm not. I'm not, huh? There we go. All right. Proverbs 18, 17. Here we go. Say, the one who states his case first seems right till the other examines him. Okay. I remember the first time that I was, I was putzing on the Internet and I, I ran across this website that spoke about how the United States didn't land on the moon at all. Instead, this whole thing's a big hoax. And, and, and then I remember reading on this page uh, uh, about... Remember what happened when the United States landed on the moon, quote-unquote, is uh, we're in the height of the Cold War, and it was important for us to show dominance, and what better way to show dominance than to put people on the moon? And then the, the, the problem was that this is impossible, right? <laughs> you can't put people on the moon. It's a giant hoax. The United States did, and they, they pulled off. And so what they did was, rather than landing on the moon, they, they staged all these photos in a studio someplace. And, um, and, and then they published it to the world. So look, we're on the moon. And the idea was to propagandize against Russia. They, if the people of Russia figured out that, boy, America put people on, room, on the moon. We can't. Right? There'd be like an advantage in the Cold War, this subtle psychological warfare. And so, so they, they said, this is all a hoax. And so they produced evidence for the case. And so I remember seeing this picture. And this flag is rippling in the wind. And they say... Everyone knows there's no wind on the moon. Why is this flag rippling? And you go, hmm, that's right. There's no wind on the moon. How, how is that flag rippling like that? Or they come to this picture. This is a picture they claim of Buzz Aldridge. And, and NASA said there were only two astronauts on the moon at any time. They never had any more, and yet you see here, you got the, the guy in the picture, you got the photographer taking the picture, and then you got the, the guy, and that's three people. Why is it that there are only two 
Right? Or, or how do you explain this picture here? There are no stars in the background of the picture. I mean, you, you'd expect, right, the stars to be filling the night sky. Look at how dark that is. But there are, there are no stars in that sky. People, you messed up at NASA. And so the evidence is I could, I could show you many, many, many more pictures. All i got to do is Google. You'll find all, all these pictures about all these, all these people. Um, and then do you know what happened after I saw this? I went to another website. And that website then explained some of the things that I had seen on the, on the first website. So, for instance, the reason why there are ripples in the flag is because, I don't know this Buzz Aldridge or not, but he puts the flag down and kind of, you know, in order to cram it in there, by jiggling like that. And so that's like this, the, the inertia of the jiggle, kind of because it was taken right after he put that flag down. So there was still a little, little jiggle, jiggle in there. The, the missing photographer is actually, the guy who took this was the other, uh, the other astronaut. The, the sun's behind him, and it's casting a shadow. That shadow there is Buzz Aldridge right there. And, and they kept cameras on their chest. You can even see his, his camera right there. And so the other guy's kind of got his hands here, this chest. He's shooting a picture with his camera on his chest is, is what took place there. And uh, regarding the stars in the sky... There's just too much light on the planet. The sun, remember, the sun is shining down on the moon. It's similar to our day, except their, their day sky is dark because there's no atmosphere rather than having a, a blue sky. We wouldn't look up at the blue sky and say, oh, look, there's no stars in the sky. And, and you can go on and on and on and on. And so reading the second website convinced me, and I'm still convinced to this day, although maybe not, some of you are not, and NASA landed on the moon. Okay, these guys really walked on the moon. But I want you to think about the process that I went through where I, I experienced. I first heard a story about how we didn't land on the moon. And I kind of confused about it. And then I read another explanation that came in, and it helped set the facts straight. I think that's exactly what's happening here in Proverbs 18:17. The one who states his case first seems right till the other comes and examines him. I've seen this many, many, many times. A person comes and speaks their side of the story with their own slant. And it's believable. And then another person comes in and examines it with their slant, and you all of a sudden begin to see the holes in the argument. And you see the things you hadn't really seen before because you didn't have the facts. But with more facts, you th see things clearly. I've seen it at home with my children. When, uh, when one person is caught, one of my children is caught doing something, and kind of shading the truth a little bit, and then someone else comes along and explains it. I'm like, ah, now I understand. I've seen it at church with disputes among church members when things arise, you know, dealing with others outside the church, and uh, it all happens, right? You, you hear one story about this great injustice that takes place, and someone comes along and explains it's like, oh, that really what happened? Oh, that's, that's not so bad. That's why, in part, the Lord has required two witnesses in event of a judgment taking place. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. The same principle is here. One can shade a story. But when another one comes along, it helps put the story uh, appropriate. And um, you got to realize that people will slant stories to their own means for their own perspective. I mean, it's natural. We're sinners. We put ourselves in the best light. I put myself in my best light. You put yourself in your best light. It's what Adam and Eve did. Remember Adam? Now, now consider if you didn't know 
what took place with the, the serpent and everything. Okay, so just take, if you took scissors and, and took out Genesis 3, 1 through 7, that whole episode about Satan coming and deceiving Eve and the process there and Adam. And uh, just imagine that if that, that process, you didn't have that, and all you had was Adam's testimony. Did you eat the fruit? And Adam said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. What does it sound like? Sounds like it's totally her fault, Right? She gave it to me, and she she like it didn't even she she didn't even tell me the whole information. Just like here's a fruit, Adam. It's like oh okay. Or what Eve did, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's almost like it's it's the serpent's whole fault. It's almost like the serpent came the same same way, had a fruit, said here, Eve, why don't you try this? Eve's like oh that's good, eat it, forgetting the whole process because she wants to put herself in the in a good light. But the Lord was able to discern right and wrong, discern between Adam and Eve what, what happened. But is this not slanting things your way, what Aaron did? Moses came down from the mountain, found them worshiping the golden calf. And he explains this story. I mean, listen to this. He, he says, um, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot, Moses. Right? You know the people, they're, they're set on evil. Right? It's the evilness of the people. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So I said to them, let anyone who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in this fire and out came this calf. It's almost like it was their initiation. It was, it was all to them. And I just, I just said, well, just give me some gold. And I put the gold in. See, it's, it wasn't really very much of me at all. Just the facts are mostly right, but they're slanted. Or as Saul did when Samuel came to confront him about his disobedience to the Lord, to wipe out Agag and all the Amalekites. And, and he said initially, I've made, obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on this mission which the Lord sent me. I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek. I've devoted the, Amaleks, the Amalekites to destruction. Well, except for Agag, who should have been destroyed as well. But the people took the spoil the sheep and the oxen, and the best of things devoted to destruction and sacrifice to the Lord, your God in Gilgal. See, it's, it's the people who did this. And then Samuel prodded a bit further, and it was only then that he confessed. And he said, yes, I have sinned. Listen, this is how our hearts work. We, we, shade, we shade the truth. And then someone's going to come along and, and make the truth right. If you're looking for application, here's, here's my first point from this verse. It, it's realize that someday you'll stand before the Lord with no opportunity to shade the truth anymore. I mean, everything there will be open and laid bare. As it says in Luke 8, 17, nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. When you stand before God, the books will be opened, your life will be exposed, and what you did will be exposed to God in every way. You may paint things such as you will in your own eyes, but God will paint them the true colors. See, as one who states his case first seems right until God comes along and examines him. And on that day, God won't have to work too hard to expose that you're a sinner. Um, first of all, a check if you went to jail. All right, Marcy, right? But for most of us who haven't, then he's going to say, well, let's, let's just check. And he'll start prodding. And he doesn't have to prod very long, and we'll all be found a sinner before God. And you can either know that now and anticipate that for the future and confess your sin today, 
Or you can hold out thinking you're going to stand your chance against the divine omniscient attorney who's far better than any attorney that's on this earth. And he's just got a job to show your sinfulness. It's easy because we all are, are sinful. So, but there's mercy today. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if you deny your sin and if, if you say, well, I'm, I'm not so bad or I've not sinned, First John, that we'll get to uh, here in the fall, it just explains that, right? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. First John 1, verse 8 and 10. When God comes to examine us, we will be guilty. And so your choice is to confess your sin now, say, Christ, I need your help, or to wait for that day when he examines you thoroughly. Second point of application. First is confession. My second point of application is just, it's just discernment. Just, just discern that anything someone tells you oftentimes is slanted their way. And so if someone tells you something, particularly maybe something slanderous or something like um, unbecoming or something just not quite right, I say withhold judgment and wait until more facts are in. I remember this time in the church when a, a woman heard a story about me, which is entirely untrue. And um, she had an appointment with Yvonne to come over to her house, and she canceled that meeting because she could not bear walking inside the house knowing what I did. And we're like, oh, what, what's that? And so her husband called me, arranged this meeting. So they come over to my office, and I remember, and uh, uh, they came over to explain how wrong I was. And as they spoke, first they, they spoke in obscure terms, right? Not, not using names, but vague generalities about this or that. And I, I just could not, I couldn't understand what they were talking about. I was like, mm, I don't know what you're talking about. And then came in the names and the situation and the event. And I'm like, mm, that's not true. <laughs> it's just, it was, it, was, it was simply just not there. Um, in fact, they knew far more about the circumstances than I knew. I mean, I was somewhat familiar, but it was, it was pretty far distant. And they were angry at me that I didn't act about something. And, and they knew all about it, and yet they themselves didn't act. But they were so riled up in, in hearing just some kind of testimony. I'm not sure, maybe it was from a child in the church to some a child to another mom or something, of how I, that she couldn't even come to her house. And I just say this, show discernment. And if you see something like that, um, in love, overlook that and bear that until you get all of the, the information and the, and the facts in. They, they left my office a bit apologetic, a bit embarrassed, because verse 13 is what happened. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. So he, they, they, they just kind of spoke too quickly. And so I just encourage you, right, just, just be discerning about things that you hear about people and and wait for someone else to come and then decide what is right and wrong. Because you'll, you'll see, if this is open up, you will see Proverbs eighteen seventeen all over in your life. All right, well, let's, let's uh, sing another song. And then we'll come up with a meditation for the Lord's Supper. It's coming up. Sermon this morning, and this will be short. In fact, I'm going to use this proverb as a communion meditation to lead us to the table. 
because um, there are some, some nuggets here just for us. comes from Proverbs 18. It says verse 21. It's 18, 19, actually. Okay, here we got to do this thing here. 18, 19 is what it is. Okay, just ignore that. It says, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. Right? A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. All right, so let, let's say it together, right? A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. This verse is talking about the deep hurt that comes when a brother is offended. When someone sins against another person, that, that sin can be brushed off or that sin can drive a, a deep wedge between the two individuals. A deep, solid, iron, immovable wedge. So much so that Solomon compared it to a strong city that defies capture. Like you can't, you can't get rid of this wedge. In Solomon's day, of course, cities were surrounded by walls. 10, 20, 30, 40 feet tall. And they were 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 feet wide. I mean, these are basically big pounds of rocks. Big piles of rocks that you just can't, can't get over unless you have some kind of ladder or anything like that. And, and these cities also were built on a hill. So that if you're going to go up and, and conquer into the city, not only do you have to, uh, to climb up the hill, but you've got to ascend the hill and then ascend the wall in order to break it off. And on top of the wall, you have, you have uh, defenders who have arrows and bows and big boulders ready to drop on you to, to hit. So a strong city is difficult to take over, especially in the ancient days. And um, so also is making things right with a brother offended Note, note that this is also speaking, not speaking about those, those out there. It's talking about a brother that is a close relative or maybe someone within the clan or someone within the community, a, a church member, if you will. That's what's being talked about. And a church member, a, a relative, there's something, about, there's something about offending someone close like that that's particularly difficult to, David even says, right, in the, the psalm leading up to Judas' kiss, he says, well, if it were an enemy, I could handle that. If an enemy betrayed me, but it's a friend, my closest companion. See, when Judas kissed Jesus on the cheek, it was a brother, and it made it especially, especially difficult. Uh, I, I remember about 10 years ago offending my sister-in-law. Um, her children at that time were maybe 10. And uh, they just got this new thing called an MP3 player. And so I was like, it, wasn't, it was sort of new. And so I said, oh, let, let me take it. And so I kind of looked on the MP3 player, and just random songs and all these names I'd never heard of before, random song, listened to it, and it was awful. I mean, a lot of times you can't even understand the words to these songs. I, I understand the words, and I could discern that it was bad. And so I said, well, let's try another one. Same experience. It's bad. And I, I, don't think, I don't think that she knew about what was going on. And so in the course of conversation about an hour later, I was kind of away with her. and My dad was there with her and, and just wanting to help her. Here's what I said. I said, this music would never be allowed in our home. And that went over about as well as a ton of bricks. She heard me when I said that. I, I was trying to say like, oh, you know what? 
you might want, there's some poison in your home and you maybe you want to, you don't know about it, maybe you want to look at it, but it, it came over saying that you are a terrible parent and you have no idea what's happening inside your home and here you've got this MP3 player and you know what? It wouldn't come into our home. I'm the righteous one and you are such a, you know, whatever, a dirt bag. You're bad parent, bad parent. You know what, and I, I totally was wrong. I, I totally was wrong in approaching how I approached it. Just, I was very judgmental, and, and I realized that. And before the day was over, I confessed to her, and I tried to make it right. And, it, and I tried, but she had been offended. And it, 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 it took years of me affirming her and encouraging her and building upwards so as to show her that I'm for her, I'm not against her. Because that's the idea with family, right? Is that you need to be for your family, not against your family. And it took, it took many years for her to realize that I, I was for her, not, a, not a, against her. Um, and this verse just, that's exactly right. How difficult it is just relationally to kind of deal with that after a, a brother offended has been there. And, and I could tell story after story after story of people that I have offended over the years. Church members who I've offended over the years. Some are here in the church. Praise God, you've endured with me through my sin. Others have taken the easy road and left. My pastor did something to me and I just, I'm just going to leave. Well, the next pastor might do something as well. And you might, might leave as well, but... Proverbs eighteen nineteen is true. Uh, I, I have seen it. I, I've experienced it. One of my roles as a pastor, oftentimes, is to um, is, is to is to try to seek peace. I'm a peacemaker. It's what what pastors do many times. And and uh, I've seen the second half of the verse. Quarreling is like the bars of a castle. In other words, you start you start you start quarreling with each other, and you, and you start putting bars of a castle up, like strengthening, like you've established your position. Once you start quarreling. You become deeper, deeper entrenched into your position. I've, I've seen that well. I remember conflict between two families at church. They're not here anymore. And I first started quarreling, and I, I, I heard someone, someone was calling me and telling me about how bad these people are and what they did and how we ought to church discipline these people. I mean, the first conversation, they ought to church discipline them. I'm like, okay, well, Proverbs 18, 17. I wasn't wise back then. I didn't realize this. But I was okay, well, let me talk to the other person. So I called the other person up, and they said, oh, no, no, this is so bad what they did. We ought to church discipline them. <laughs> so like, kind of entrenched in their positions. And so I tried to reconcile the families in like a bars of a castle. I wasn't moving anything, okay? I had tweezers trying to move these bars, and I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything. But I found myself really in the middle of a mess is what I, I found myself. And, and so I tried to reconcile these these. People and, and and not at my request. One of them said, "Here, look, I want to show you how right I am." And dumped about fifty pages of emails back and forth about everything that had transgressed between these. So I was like, "Whoa!" Like I couldn't even read it. But but really struck me is this: is that that they got established in their positions and they're quarreling and they're fighting. And it's not about it's not about love and reconciliation. It's about proving my point. And that's really what. What took place here is their quarreling were bar, like bars of a castle. And really the only way that quarrel would ever, would ever end, I believe there's still a problem there to this day, would be if both parties would humble themselves before Christ. Because believers in Christ were called to forgive each other. The Jesus told the parable about the one man who owed a debt to his, his whatever landowner or master. A couple hundred million dollars debt. He said, just be patient with me and I'll repay all. And the guy looked at him and said, there's no way you can repay all. I forgive it. 
And he got huge debt paid. And then he turns around the guy that owed him a couple hundred dollars. And the guy said the same thing. Oh, just be patient with me. I'll repay everything. He wasn't patient at all. He threw him in the dungeon. And the, the point is, is that how inconsistent is that? How can one who's been forgiven so much not forgive another who's been forgiven just a little bit? Yet It does happen all the time. People are offended and they just, they just, that relationship isn't mended. And I just, church family, I just encourage you in love, extend grace to other people. The first Corinthians 13 speaks about how love bears all things. Love endures all things. Love hopes all things. And that's the idea when there's a, a contention that, that the love will just take that and will bear that rather than, rather than pointing out every sin and, and going at, at it. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. If someone offends you, know this. It's your glory to overlook that offense. So I just encourage you to be, be glorious and be overlooking offenses. But as we, we come to the Lord's Supper, I, I do want to think about this from from God's standpoint of view, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. Do you realize that all of us in our sin have deeply offended God? We have deeply offended God. And as our character is, it's difficult to overcome that strong city. But God, in His mercy, has a different disposition towards us that He's ready and willing to forgive all who confess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And, and you have offended the Lord far more in your sin than you have offended anybody else on the planet. And God is more unyielding than a strong city because every sin against Him must be punished. But the good news is this, that His sin, our sin, was punished at the cross of Christ if we but believe in Jesus. Nailed to the cross is what Colossians chapter 2 says. Taken out of the way. So realize that you have offended God. But your hope to reconciliation with God is through the cross. So believe in the cross. And that's, that's what the Lord's Supper is describing for us. You remember his last supper in the night when he was betrayed. When he took the bread and the cup. And he anticipated the cross. He said, that's where I'm going. And I'm going to die for you. If you but believe. And I know there are some visitors here this morning. We're soon to pass out some bread little crackers, um, and a cup. If you're professing the Lord Jesus and believe and trust in Him, celebrate with us and take that. But, it, but if you're not trusting in Christ, uh, please just let that cup pass by. 1 Corinthians 11 speaks about if you eat unworthily, you, you'll be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. It's as if you're sinning against Jesus. It's as if you're saying, yes, Jesus, I'm going to take you, but yet not really believing and trusting in Him. If you're believing and trusting in Him, just let's, let's celebrate the fact that we've offended God, but through Christ, those offenses, which once were a large city, can be taken down and we can come into that city and rest with God. So let's pray together and then we'll celebrate the supper. Father, I thank You that You, God, in Christ Jesus, have overlooked our, overlooked our offense. Father, that, that through Him who was righteous, you have taken us who are unrighteous and given us his righteousness and taken our unrighteousness to yourself. You've taken the offense against yourself. You've, you've turned the other cheek and let us 
smite you on the other. God, so that you might present to us a clean cheek. Father, so, so help us, O oh God, to, to see the glories of Christ. Father, would pray even now. I, in fact, I just encourage you and exhort you to just examine your own life. See if there's, there's sin in your life you're harboring. Maybe it's this going away to an isolated place. Maybe, maybe that's a sin where you have. Maybe you've been quick to judge others. Maybe you haven't heard the full stories. But you've been quick to presume upon a, a sin of other people based upon hearsay or what you think rather than what you know. Or maybe it's even right here. Someone's offended you. Jesus even speaks about that. If, if you have someone against your brother, leave your gift there at the altar and go reconcile first to your brother and then, and then offer up your gift. So maybe that you need to reconcile first. Maybe that can't be done. Maybe you should leave and reconcile first. Or at least resolve. I'm not going to celebrate the supper until that is resolved. Father, I would pray for the truth of this passage to be true in us. God, that we would see how strong offenses are and that we would be like you. Just putting water off the duck's back. God, really being open and willing to, to face suffering and persecution as Jesus did. Because he, he suffered as an example for us that we should follow in his steps. God, help us to realize even this morning in a special way, come, Lord Jesus, and, and commune with us and show us the glories of the cross. We eat this bread and we drink this cup. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.